known until afterwards that they had the three bodies on the ground outside and they didn't want me to go in and see the three bodies. I say, God, where are they gone? They're all dead, he said. No, nothing came into my head in the light of somebody going in to murder my daughter. I kept saying to him, no, it can't be, it can't be a local lad like that. Just up here, yeah, turn to the right here for Wanga. We've arrived in Wine Gap, and as you can probably hear, Lexi the dog greets us as we walk towards Christy and Nancy Whelan's home on what is a crisp and bright November morning. Their bungalow is tucked down the end of a quiet courtyard just off the main road leading into the village. It's a beautiful part of the world and a beautiful time of the year to be here, with the leaves already speckled with hints of golden brown, vibrant yellows and rusty reds. As the morning sun begins to warm up, a veil of misty fog is starting to lift off the lush fields in the distance behind us, and the only tweets vying for our attention are from the birds singing in the trees above. Lexi beats Christy to the front of the welcoming party, but Christy is marking her closely and he's not far behind, ushering us in with a big, friendly smile. He looks well. Nancy is the next to wish us a good morning, her softly spoken greeting barely audible over the sound of Lexi scampering around her feet. It's a calm and peaceful setting, and I couldn't think of a better place to start the day. But such a beautiful morning is almost bittersweet for Christy and Nancy. Come rain, hail or shine, at eight every morning they take the short stroll up to the local graveyard to visit their daughter Sharon and her two little girls, Zara and Nadia, who were murdered 13 years ago in a tragedy that not only shocked the small and rural community of Winegap, but left an entire country in tears. Live from studios in Carlo and Kilkenny, this is KCLR 96FM News. Good morning, I'm Pierce O'Queeve. Gardaí and fire services in Kilkenny are attending the scene of a house fire in the Callan area, which started at around 9 o'clock this morning. Fire Control have confirmed to KCLR 96FM that a search is underway for a family of three who are believed to be the inhabitants of the house. No further details are known. This time of the year is not good. We were thinking that we were... This is the toughest, you know, coming up to this time of the year, like, you know what I mean? It's absolutely... Every year is getting tougher. We were in Kilkenny there and she broke down there Monday because where we saw them going to Santi the last time, you know, and she broke down there and, you know, Mark Cross, like, she just, you know, see the decoration going up, like, and, you know, you, you don't want to spoil Christmas for the rest of the, the, the grandchildren, like, you know. Do you, can you even celebrate the day yourselves? We no, we don't celebrate. Well, we hope to Linda for now, but we're most at the break. Yeah, that's that's Does the tree grow up or decorations or is Christmas oh, no, just a no, non-event? It was always here. It was a madhouse, you know, like for all the kids. So it's on that day. I know it's bad any day, but on that day we don't do Christmas. All we have is the mass. Yeah. You know, and that we go to the grave. That's that's our Christmas. Mm-hmm. I can't even go in there. 
the kids are going up in their ties or anything because they have flashbacks of poor Sharon and the kids shopping. The last time I seen them shopping, and that's why I broke down the other day in town. I could see Zara waving at me going in to see Santa. She was so happy. She said, in and she was the loveliest age for Santa. And little Nadia had no sense for Santa, you know. She was trying to tell Nadia, like, what should we get? And then ask Santa for this, ask Santa for that, you know. The innocence of it all, you know. So excited and so swept know. up in the festivities. And <laughs> little did I know that that would be it. In this podcast, we'll hear the story of the Whelan family and how one silent night destroyed their lives forever. We'll go inside the crime, but we'll also follow them on their quest for justice, or what they say would be a more just justice, because 13 years on, they still feel they're waiting for that. But first, let's go right back now to when Christy and Nancy first met. Like many Irish couples of their generation, it was in a dance hall in London in the 60s. Dennis Free, that's, that's the first time we met was in Dennis Free and I was working in Wall's Meat Factory and she was working in Wall's Meat Factory, you know, and I said, well, I said, she said, I'm working in Wall's Meat Factory and Wall's Meat Factory was in Hayes. You were working in, At- in Atlas, Atlas Road and so I said, right, so I met her on a Saturday night and Monday morning, sir, I went up to see Nancy, which would be coming out, no sign of her, couldn't find her. I said, well, you know, but I didn't know her name was Hayes. <laughs> that's where we, we got mixed up, the name, and I said, you know, I said, I'm working in Hayes, and she said, my name is Hayes, and I thought she was working in Hayes. And how did you eventually track her down? Oh, we met in the Gatti, we met in Dennis Free after, again, like, you know, so that's where it started, like, you know. Uh, what was Sharon like as, was she your first child? No, I had Jacqueline first. And Jacqueline was just walking when she died. Just imagine to have a child ready to walk after buying her first pair of shoes. And she got sick the same time as my sister's twins. And they had the same, we'll say, diarrhea and vomit, you know, babies it get. And they had the same thing, like, and the doctor was coming in and out, passing up and down to the to the dispensary up here and down to Kilmagani. So maybe pass any call in to see how they were. I said to him, why is Jacqueline not getting better, you know? It was only her third day sick, but the boys seemed to be, the twin boys seemed to be coming on great, you know? But she's ah, she's just a bit slower, he said, than the boys. That evening, anyway, she got very weak. And at that time, Christy, we didn't have a car, we were going to get a car, weren't we? And at that time, you were working at the, the big store up the road, and we were up and we asked that man's wife to take me to a different doctor down Ballahale, a, a, a bit away, like. But sure, he saw me coming with the child in my arms, and he said, turn back as quick as you can, and as quick as the car can go, he said, keep going. She was only three hours inside, and she died. Yeah, I still wonder. Jacqueline's death crushed Nancy and Christy. No parent should ever have to bury a child and sadly, it wouldn't be the last time they had to do so. Nancy is a homebird 
She always planned to move back to her roots when they decided to start a family. They went on to have two boys, John and Paul. It was a busy house, but they felt they'd more love to give. And so begins the wonderful story of how Sharon came to be Nancy and Christie's daughter. Sitting in their dining room, with Lexi circling her feet, Nancy's eyes light up as she tells us how two became five. Uh, Paul and John were getting very hardy, like, you know, and um, I was just thinking, well, I'd love to adopt a little girl, you know. And my sister said, you should, you should, you should adopt a little girl. Now she said, you have two lovely little boys. And I was still grieving over, over her Jacqueline, you know. And I went on anyway, but she wasn't for adopting when I, when I met her. She was for just fostering. And we went in there for about six weeks to meet her, and she was thinking Mammy and Daddy was coming, like, we didn't just take her, you know what I mean? So I remember the social worker. She lifted in every week in to, in to see her, and um, she was getting, we were bonding with her, you know. But we were well bonded with her when I thought, like, this little boy came down with snow-white hair and piercing blue eyes. Now, you'd run away with him. But when they came into the room and said to me, do you want to meet Sharon's brother? And how could I give Sharon back after bonding with her? I said, You're not, I'm not taking her, I doubt him, I said. And you didn't know that she had a brother? Never knew until, then, until six weeks after, we were after bonding with Sharon. And I said, oh God, no, I said, this changes everything. I said, I can't go without him. How could I break him up? And he was beautiful. He's there in the middle, there's no white hair. I'm Marlene in the line, John, Paul, David, Sharon, Linda. Linda is another sibling of Sharon and David's who came to the family a few months later. John is the eldest and was about 12 when Nancy and Christy decided to adopt. He vividly remembers the first time he met his new siblings, which he recounted to me over a cup of tea in his kitchen earlier this summer. I remember going in um, into St. Joseph's and the, the big, going in through these big doors and then there's a, there's a kind of a staircase in front of you and it went, it went up and then it branched off to the left and right. And I remember Sharon being brought down by... Uh, her social worker, but she was had Sharon by the hand coming down the stairs, and I just I just seen this this child with the whitest of white hair. I, I couldn't describe it to you. It was blonder than blonde, nearly. Yeah, they were all blonde. Yeah, and then whatever look I gave on the other side, uh, David was coming David. down as well. And he had piercing blue eyes. You'd run yeah. away with So basically, like these were, you know, my sister and my brother being introduced to me for the first time, like you know. And they were shy. I remember them being shy, and of course they would be shy. And I think I remember it was, I think it was, was the, the doctor's van that we picked them up in. To come home. Mean, yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the famous, yeah, yeah. Dr. Crowley's Dr. ambulance. Crowley's yeah, we got along to that to go in and get them. But I remember sort of breaking the ice with both of them coming back and having little chats and playing with them a little bit, like, you know, so. Um, remember coming back into the house and suddenly we had gone from just myself and Paul to, you know, double the amount of kids in the house, you know, so. And were you very excited about having a sister for the first time? Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, it was, it was fantastic, you know, to, to, to have that dynamic in the house as well, but like at 12 years of age, like it's just someone else to play with or someone else to, 
you know, whatever. Uh, we just accepted it. It, it. it was what it was. Like, there was no, never any question mark or never any doubt or anything like that. It was just the way things were and we just got on with it, you know. Um, so Was it a very smooth transition yes, then into the family? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the only rows we had was who was sleeping where. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> or which bed we had, or, yeah. you know. Sharon was very interested in people. Nancy told us she had loads of friends. She described her as a kind and loyal friend. You knew where you stood with her too. She wasn't afraid to speak her mind. She loved school. She was a good pupil. She loved people. So it was no surprise when she decided to pursue a career in hospitality. She just loved looking after people and making sure everyone had a good time. Like Nancy, she always wanted kids too. And in her 20s, she had two little girls, Zara and Nadia. She was a great mum. Sure, she learned from the best. In 2008, they were living in a small rented farmhouse just down the road from Christy and Nancy in Winegap. That Christmas, Zara was seven and a half. The half was very important to her. She was full of beans and just loved keeping her nana and granddad on their toes. Nadia was just two and a half her little personality just starting to show. Grandad Christy had a particularly strong bond with Zara. They were the best of pals. I used to go down in the morning and pick her up for school. And about eight o'clock. And she wouldn't be ready or she would be ready and I'd have to wait. But when she got into the car then, I remember one morning she got into the front of the car and I said to her, Zara, I said, you can't sit in the front seat, I said, because a guard might come and see you in the front seat. And she said to me, a guard around wine gap, she said to me. <laughs> My granddad, she said. And she sat there and then when they'd be coming out, she used to do the indicator for me, or right, go left. And I used to bring her up then and she said, Granddad, you're my taxi driver and then he's my hairdresser. I was the hairdresser. And he used to bring her up and, and down to school. I used to put bones in for her hair, in her hair. She had beautiful hair. I could uh, still feel it. Just like, just like her mummy. I used to bring her up and down to I school. I feel it in my hands all the time because I did her hair every morning. And I brought her up and down to school every day. And she'd be with me to school. And the next time my phone might ring in the school and I'd say, Christy, there's a school match out with you about the flags for the match. And I'd say, yeah. And aren't she come with me? And I'd be pulling the trolley and she'd be putting up the flags all along the hurling field with me. Such a lovely memory. You know, it's a memory like, you know, and that was every time the school match, like she'd be, you know what I mean? Then she'd start to play Kamogi herself. Yeah. In. And she was great for running and all, like, you know, and some nights she might come up after training and she'd say, Oh, Nanny, I'm bet. I'm, I'm staying over. I can't. I'll have a shower here now. I can't I'm going to bed. I'm you staying know. here, not going home. She sounded, she sounded like a real little character. Oh, she was. Oh, she was. I remember one particular day uh, she was in, so I said, I'll walk you home today, like, you know. And she said, yeah, OK. No, it's a nice walk. It's a very hot day. Yeah, and I was walking along and I used to tell her about when I was going to school and the school bike that I had. And I said, sometimes I said I wouldn't have any shoes he was walking me bare feet and she dug me and said, How could you do that? And 
you know, she was really interested. She chat all the way down along. She tell me the next day what it would tell. What was your, you know, the way you uh, went to school and all like, just a full chat. And I remember one day I left it on and she said, Granddad, she said, are you doing anything in the morning? And I said, why? Sure, you come down, she said, we'll go down the road for a chat, she said. You know, down. And I went down the next morning and we went down another part of the road, like, and she started talking about the cows in the field and about the sheds and about the houses and, you know, and we, I think we've gone far enough now, she said. I go back home now, she says. And we brought her back home and in. She used to have a little bike around the yard, like, you know, and that was my, uh, Zara, that was my, you know what I mean? This was a completely, you know, she was absolutely a lovely little girl. Oh, wise beyond her years, by the sounds of it. Oh, she was, she was, uh, you know what I mean? She loved to be in the limelight, if you like. And Nancy, it sounds like Sharon really wanted to be a mum, and it sounds like she was a brilliant mum. She oh, doted on the two girls. Our children with our life, mm. them two children never wanted from anything. Mm. And like, even the coroner's board centre that we had, his children, like, you know, they were well looked after. Mm. Our children was our first priority, no matter what, school, clinics, doctors, anything. They had to be there. She never cancelled not one appointment for any of them to go anywhere. And true to form, Sharon had everything ready for Santi's visit in 2008 and it looked like that Christmas was a particularly good one for her, as Nancy and Christy now explain, again with Lexi scampering around the conservatory, which actually has a pitch-side view of the hurling field where Christy and Zara spent so much time together. But that Christmas, above all Christmases, she rang me, she must have rang me three or four times that Christmas Eve. She said, ma'am, she said, I have everything done for the girls, she says. I have everything, you know, grand, granddad will be bringing them down, but I have everything done that they wanted. I got everything they want, they asked. And ma'am, she said, I have all my bills paid, she said. And I'm, I, have, I have a few bobs, she says, left over. Me and Linda square. The next night, I was going to mind the kids and leave them, two of them out. And she said, tell dad, she said, call down in the morning, we'll all go to mess together and it will be all up to dinner to you, she said. Oh, that was... I just said something I wanted so precious in my life. Took from me. Your last um, interactions with Sharon, Christmas Eve. Well, she rang and I said I'd go down with the, the presents to her, like, you know, and as I was going down the road, my car lights would be hitting the window. So just as I was going down, I turned off the lights and just pulled in at the gaze. And she came out to meet me and I just gave her the bag of messages and there was a big box. There was a tricycle or something in it. And we just, I, I just brought it to the door and she said, no, I, I won't open that now, she said, because I might wake Sarah. Like, she said, I leave that now till, till later on to sleep. You know, it was far and out like. So I brought in the York, she said, I, We'll see you in the morning. That's the last um, I've... Not um, not the last goodbye. Little did I. Goodbye, little girl. Mm. On that mild morning a few weeks ago, we left the house and I walked with Christy and Nancy the few hundred metres from the house to the graveyard. And they explained how their daily routine started. 
I used to collect her at 8 o'clock every morning. I used to go down and collect her and bring her up. And um, she used to come here and she used to get ready here, you know. She'd say, you're my taxi driver and Annie's my hairdresser. And, you know, that was the gimmick, like, you know what I mean? And then she used to have us do her hair and, you know what I mean, get ready for school. You'd do the hair in the morning, Nancy, would you? Oh, yeah, I'd have the fish bones in for her, you know. <laughs> she loved the hair, she had beautiful hair. She did, looking yeah. at the photos there, long beautiful blonde hair. texture, yeah. I could still feel it. I'd often stop when I go for a walk and I'd say, God, I'd say, Zara, I still feel your, I feel your hair, the texture of your hair, you know. And you get some comfort out of this daily ritual going up to the oh graveyard. Oh yeah. sure, this is all we have. We don't have anything else really. It's all we have left now. It's up and down to the grave every morning. As long as the man above lets us go. The graveyard sits on a hill just above the main street in Wine Gap. And as we approached the gate, Christy stopped his ascent. He looked to the right pointed across a few lush fields to a shed in the distance. This, we learned, is the farm where Sharon's rented cottage was set ablaze that morning. See where all the kettle is. See where all the kettle is lying down on the ground. See just up over and see the shed. That's where, that's where she was. So there's just a handful of fields separating the graveyard from where, where it all unfolded. Do you find that difficult, Nancy, looking over to your right there? And well, all I'm seeing is beautiful countryside and you can see the fog lifting there is... I find it hard, like, I know. I gave years going down there to my sister. Years and years. I couldn't go after that. Could not go. And how about yourself, Christy? I mean, when you're walking up here every morning, do you ever try and resist the temptation to look to your right there? No, I always look down at that shit. I always... Uh Look down at that shed, like, you know what I mean? Uh, so I was in the back of my mind in the morning, I went down that road with one shoe on, the other half on, and to walk in there and see what I see, and then to see so many neighbours and see two men that risked their lives to get them out of there. Um, those men are always in our prayers. They were two brave, brave men. I think one or two of them went to... Um, I think the two of them went to school with Sharon, actually, you know. But they took the life in their own hands. And there's an old saying, so probably said through one of When you have to do it, you'll do it. What was going through your head, Christy, that morning, I then Christmas morning? I feel, I thought they were in, they were after escaping out the back, I thought they were going down the field, I thought they were out in the shed, like, you know what I mean? And uh, the front room, the window hadn't been broken and one man said, I said no, I said they're in there, in that place there and the wind they broke the window so the smoke came out so they came back so I said I go around the back to see what's in the sheds and some man screamed Christy don't come back there because there's an air tank there could explode but I didn't know until afterwards that they had the three bodies on the ground outside and they didn't want me to go in and see the three bodies it was a two-storey house and it all fell down on one side. And that side, the top came down in that room, but that never stirred. The roof and that room never even buckled. 
nor even the, the windows never even melted. And once or twice I went down after that to look in to say, you know, God, and just look at it, you know, there being anything to be nothing after happening. You know, but it was such an old, old house, you see, and between the fireplace and the room, there was a huge, big block wall, you know, and that's what stopped the, the frames from coming through in, in that room. And how did it come to your attention? Was it the knock at the door or was it the late oh, night phone? Oh, the knock at the door. Oh, my God, i never forget when that man said, Sharon's house on fire. And then she says, what's wrong? And I tried to get her shoes and all, like, you know, just going down there, you could hear the slates cracking, you know what I mean? I flew down that road there, like, and the fire began and arms and all came then, like, you know what I mean? But I'll never forget that morning, though it's 14 years this Christmas, but it's as clear in my mind today as what happened that morning, and all the men. I, 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 I couldn't pray to them enough, you know what I mean? And I know the two chaps who were in there, they didn't want to any, you know, they didn't want to be sort of... They should have got bravery medals. What was going through your head, Nancy, when there was that knock at the door? I was full sure there was an accident. You know, the way you'd say, oh, oh God, an accident. And he came back and he said, they're all gone, gone. He kept running around the place. <laughs> I can still hear him saying, they're all gone, I kept, it must be a dream or something. I say, gone, where are they gone? They're all dead, he said. I remember saying all the time, what are we going to do? What did we do without them, you know? What happened to them? First of all, you'd be thinking, like, they were thinking it was an electrical fault, you know, or I did there was just an accident landing. No, nothing came into my head in the line of somebody going in to murder my daughter. Nothing like that came into my head because she was the loveliest girl. Who would want to do something like that? John, Sharon's eldest brother, lives about 30 minutes away and he was enjoying the usual Christmas morning traditions. Tea and toast after opening Santa's presents, getting ready for the short drive to Wind Gap for the big family dinner, a Christmas tradition that wasn't honoured that year and hasn't been honoured since. There would just be too many empty seats at the table. John will never forget the dreaded phone call he received that morning and he recounted what he remembered as we sat around his kitchen table. The landline ran down here um, and I heard Sandra pick up the phone and I just heard her say, Nancy, I can't understand what you're saying. What's happened? What's happened? So she said, ring, ring Josh, you rang me on the mobile. So what, what you were saying to me is that they're gone, they're gone, I they're didn't gone. know what I was saying to him, you know, I, I, and he didn't know who I was talking about. I was trying to pull it together. What's after happening? Yeah. And I, she said, uh, your dad is down there now, but the, the, the lads are gone, they're gone. And I said, a bit like dad, I says, what are you, what are you, what are you talking about? There's been a fire and the lads are gone. And I said, are you sure they're in the house? And a bit like, sorry, what dad was saying earlier on, check with Eileen, did they go down there? Yeah. You know, they must be around somewhere. Like did the, you put the kids out in a field or anything? Yeah, the, the, the last thing in my head is that they were, I was looking for something to, 
to hang on to to say that they're okay. Um, and then he rang me on the mobile. I remember being just walking up and down at the gable end of the house there, and not trying to. I can't describe it any other way. It, it was, it was nearly like I was outside of myself, looking at myself walking and up and down. So then I rang Dad, and Dad said, "No, the the, the bodies are after being put out of the house." So. From there then, in my head, a bit like you, I said, Jesus, did she leave candles around? Was it electrical? What caused that? You know? And to be honest with you, from, from that point to where the liaison, girl liaison officer, Mick, told us that it's, it's not... Um, it's not being treated as an accident anymore. There's, there's suspicions around the deaths. Those couple of days in between, I have absolutely no memory of whatsoever. None. I, 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 don't even, I don't even know. I mean, Sandra just took over everything as regards the kids, and I don't know... I don't know what kind of a Christmas they had. I don't remember. I have no idea. Um, but, I, but I do... About, just while on that subject, uh, probably the most difficult thing I had to do was to try and sit down with my 10-year-old son and try and explain to him what happened. In language that he would understand. I was living in a daze then, you know. I thought I was dreaming, you know, I thought it wasn't true. And then they were talking, you know, I could hear people talking around me, and uh, I don't know who said to me, what did they wear in the coffin, you know, what she putting on them, you know. And we hadn't, we hadn't, she had no clothes because the house was burnt. And I went up to the wardrobe, and I remember taking Zara's school shirt that she left in my house and put my arms around it. And I wanted to keep it, but I had not the brother. And they were saying, you have to give us that. I said, I want to keep it. The most real memory I have is actually going to seeing the lads in the funeral home. Yeah. And the amount of people outside the funeral home, I couldn't believe it. And when I went in, just the, the three coffins lined up. And it was like the two girls were still asleep. There was no suffering, no pain on their faces whatsoever. Uh, and that I, I was very grateful for, to see, to, to see that, you know. But then I looked at Sharon. And for me, that was a very different picture because I don't know if mum and dad noticed this, but I, I could see the marks, there's bruises on her neck. Um, And that just brought things kind of into a, a stark reality. You, you've, you've gone from sort of the imagination into the physical reality of your sister lying there in front of you and her two children. And, you know, it's real. It's 3D. It's there in front of you. That's the reality of it. And I think that's when I kind of, I don't know, something... Something changed. I don't know what it was, but something changed within me. Um, I got quite angry. I got very angry. So within days, something that was initially being pegged as a tragic accident was starting to shape up as something far more sinister. This wasn't an accident. Someone was responsible for the deaths of a young mother 
and her two daughters. So who was that someone? Time was of the essence, and within weeks, Gardhi had a suspect. They had plenty to go on, but a lot to prove. What led this man to Sharon's door late on Christmas Eve 2008? How did he become their main suspect? What did investigators do to ensure that within just a short few weeks, they had someone sitting in a dock? In the next episode of Inside the Crime, we'll hear from two detectives who worked on the triple murder investigation. Following the arrest, both of them sat across a table from this man, a man they believed killed Sharon and her two girls. We'll hear about the key roles they played in the intense interrogation that followed. We'll also take a closer look at the utter destruction he caused the Whelan family, how they deal with unimaginable and overwhelming grief, and why John decided it was time to seek changes to the justice system, a system where life doesn't really mean life. I asked him why he handed down that sentence, knowing that it would probably, well, it would be overturned at appeal. And Justice Barry White said, that's what the crime deserves. Eventually, he did admit to strangling Sharn, and he stopped at that, and he wouldn't admit to the fires. Inside the Crime was hosted by me, Frank Graney, produced by Ashley Moore, and sound mixing by Lachlan Hart.